A couple things before we get started. It is true I have become one of those old men who collects readers. It's just part of my character now. Uh, second of all, I, uh, I, I think as your pastor, it's important that I let you know that you're in Christ, and one of the great joys of being in Christ is realizing that uh, the closest on earth you're ever going to get to hell is Camelback Road. So that's, that's really helpful. We don't know a time here in this location, and we've been here six years. We do not know a time in this location where Camelback Road has not been under construction. And so I feel like it's the Dan Ryan in Chicago. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's essentially it's the Dan Ryan in Chicago. Uh, last thing is if, if you really enjoy um, Bible studies, tomorrow night you could come to Alongside Ministries. We're starting, uh, Joe Ponce, Ben Bear, and I are starting Ecclesiastes. We're going to take 12 weeks, and the three of us are going to rotate and go through Ecclesiastes. That's the transition prison ministry. If you're interested in that, you can let me know. They also serve dinner there. So you could eat, too. So you wouldn't have to come in here with last night's dinner. Yeah, with Randy's bowl from Chop Shop. <laughs> That's funny. All right, we left off in the midst of chapter 7 last night. So I want to go back and reread 25 through 35 of chapter 7 and dive in there again. So he starts off chapter 7, started, you know, talking about marriage, and then he gets into some other things, but he's, he's going to circle back to marriage, and he's going to talk about singleness as well again. We've talked once about singleness, but he's going to talk about it again. So let me reread 25 through 35. Now concerning... The betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but is that 25? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I need different readers. I have some right here. Uh, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, I'll tell you what that is, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek to be free. Uh, a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. I'll talk about that. Dan, you and Rose just got married. How are things going? Any worldly troubles? Okay, thanks. All righty. Um, uh, the, <laughs> this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be, a hol how to be hol uh, holy in body and in spirit, but a married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint on you, but to promote good order and to secure you and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. 
So, first of all, what is this present distress that Paul mentions in verse 26? We know from history, um, by the way, studying scripture, it's helpful if you can find uh, concurrent history books that talk about some of the things that might be going on concurrently. There's, there's a lot of history about the city of Corinth, and so you can read about that, and you can figure some things out from what Paul is writing, what that might be. So we know from history that about this time, 53 AD, there was a famine, which caused some food shortages. We also know there was a major earthquake. And so famines and earthquakes are thought of as indications of end times. And so there was distress. That, we believe, is what Paul was referring to when he says this current uh, distressed times. End times mania often engenders question about marriage and family as well. And so Paul offers counsel. And there are two, two messages here. He extends his remain as you are exhortation beyond race and socioeconomic status, which we talked about last week. He extends it beyond that to marital status. And then second of all, he champions singleness and he explains why. So first of all, the remain as you are exhortation. Paul counsels that now is not a good time to rush into marriage, even if you're engaged. In, in their world, it would have been possibly even betrothed, which is different than, than engaged. Um, you know, if you're engaged, you can pretty much just break it off. But if you're betrothed, you actually have to get a certificate of divorce, even though you're not together yet. Okay. Uh, so... Um, he says, I prefer that you would just remain single at this point. Don't go through with the marriage. Though if you do get married, he says, it's not a sin. And this is one of the reasons he qualifies what he's saying by saying, this is really for me. I'm just trying to give you wise counsel. I don't have a word from the Lord on this. Otherwise, he might say it is sin. But he's just saying this is counsel to you. So he, he essentially he's saying, remain as you are until things shake out. Now, Right, and, and I'm going to say, here's why, and I'll explain all of that. But I just want to say that I understand why you might push against the remain as you are until things shake out. You might push against that principle. Um, think about what we've been through in the last couple of years and what we're currently going through. Anybody can come up with any reason right now to not do anything. Right? The markets are volatile. You know, we still have this virus going on and arguments over that. There's this war in Ukraine and we, inflation. I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on. And I, I feel like we're at a point now where we could just become paralyzed by everything that's going on. At some point, you have to make a decision to move forward and trust in the Lord. So having said that, though, he explains why you should remain as you are single or married until things shake out and he says here's why a christian's first priority is always devotion to god and he writes about that but if you get married scripture commands that you now also devote yourself to your spouse as part of your devotion to god devoting yourself to your spouse is actually a devotion to god okay but that devotion to your spouse then limits the amount of work and service you can give to the lord in the church isn't that just true those of you who are married. Okay? It's really very simple. And it's true for both, both husbands and wives. And part of that devotion to your spouse when you get married is the increasing need for worldly things and the increasing challenge of worldly matters. 
It's just true. And it's not just the wife who needs stuff. The husband needs stuff. And the worldly matters are how you're, you're brought together, I believe, and should be uh, brought together in your vocations. You may not work with each other, but you, you're certainly, I would guess, want to give input to each other about what's going on in your work. I rely on Jackie all the time for that, and she relies on me for that, and we're involved in that uh, together, as well as everything else, our families and whatever else is going on. So some of you know who Elizabeth Elliot is and her, her husband, Jim Elliot, who was, they were both missionaries, and he was assassinated as a missionary, I think when he was 21 years old. He was very young, but he had written all these journals, and she eventually published these journals, and they were brilliant for a guy his age. I mean, I'm 63, and I wish I had his brilliance at 63. Uh, but he journaled about this idea of getting married, and he was married, and, and here's what he says. He says, it's okay to get married, but understand the domino effect consequences. He called it uh, Peter Pumpkin Eater's Dilemma. I'm not exactly sure why he called it that, other than the fact that you just keep eating, <laughs> you know? But that's what he called it. I call it understanding the domino effect consequences. You get married. Now you need a different place. Certainly you need a little bit bigger place, Okay. And then you need stuff. You need drapes and carpets and appliances. And then he says, naturally, kids are going to come. And then you have to get more things when the kids come. And then he writes, and there's more to it than that. I'm just giving you the kind of the cliff notes. But this is the line that just gets me every single time. It's one of the greatest, all-time greatest lines about this. He says, needs multiply as they are met. Needs multiply as they are met. Okay, I hate, hate, did I say that strongly enough? Hate adding anything to my computer or my phone because every time I do, it then needs something else and something, they never tell you that up front, but then it needs something else and something else and something else and something else. And the next thing you know, you wasted six hours on this application that you don't need in the first place. But that's our whole life. Needs multiply as they're met. This is, this is what becomes known as he calls it the entangled life. You're living an entangled life. It's an anxious life about these worldly matters. You know, you buy, you buy a new house. How many consequential other new things do you need when you buy a house? Tyler James is going through that right now. I celebrate with him that he's, they have a home of their own. But man, has it been a lot of stuff, right? Okay, you sold it to him, so you're to blame. Yeah, right, yeah. Okay. Same thing with a car now. I mean, I, I, my first car was a 1970 off-white Maverick, okay? And it was off-white because it was really dirty. So, um, but I, I mean, it was just such a simple car, you know? Now it's like, uh, cars are so confusing. I, I drive a 12-year-old uh, Volvo because I don't want the anxiety of having to figure out a new car. I just don't, okay? I just keep fixing that one. Same thing with a gun. So. Uh, you know, I actually looked into buying a gun once, and oh my gosh, everything else that you had to own in order to own a gun, you know? Okay, here's a 38, it's $350, but by the time you're done, it's 1500 bucks with everything else. And I'm not even t counting the ammunition at that point. And besides, uh, ultimately, I will tell you this, and I will go on the record with this, ultimately, I'm one of those persons that you don't want to have a gun. I have taken 
I have taken so many gun and shooting lessons and I still have no flipping idea what to do with a gun. Okay, it just, uh, you know, and, and um, anything with a slide just frightens me because my hands are small and weak and I, it's like, I'm gonna kill somebody. Okay, so that's why I looked at a 38, a revolver, you know, because that's just, a, it's a simple gun, you know, but even that is like, okay. That's the last thing I need. Anyway, needs multiply as they're met, even with a gun, all right? So Tom used to tell this great story about this. When his kids were little, there was a spider on the front porch, a big spider. And they were freaking out, and he said, go kill the spider, Dad. So he walked out there, and he stomped on the spider. And when he stomped on the spider and killed what clearly, in this half second after he stomped on the spider, was a mother spider because all of these baby spiders scattered and were still alive. And he's like, boom, needs multiply as they are met, okay? <laughs> That's a perfect picture of, of what Paul is trying to get across here, okay? So that's what leads into the second message of these 11 verses. It's why it's good to be single. You can focus all of your devotion on the Lord and on the church, you get to live a disentangled life. You get to live a non-anxious life. Okay? Now, I know singles who are, not who are not living a non-anxious life because they'd really like to be married. I get that. Thoroughly understand that. Um, but it's, it's, it's the same old thing. And again, I give credit to Tom. You know, if I could just get her to say yes to a date to me, if I could just get her to to only date me exclusively, if I could just get her to say yes to an engagement, if I could just get her to marry me, if I could just get her to divorce me. I mean, that's kind of the cycle that we live in, you know? It's, it's just, it's this entangled life. So Paul says, look, there's nothing wrong with getting married. In fact, if you burn, you should get married. Burn with passion. You should get married. But if you can handle it, he says, it's good to stay single. And, and I'll say this again, I said it last week. This is why churches do a great disservice to themselves when they eschew singles and singleness and treat marriage like it's the only true Christian life that there is. It's just wrong. It's unbiblical. It's more than wrong, it's unbiblical. And verses 36 through 38 is Paul's reiteration and summary of 25 through 35. So let me read it. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed and if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him... Uh, do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having no desi his desire under control, and has determined this is his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. <laughs> Interesting way of put it, putting it. And now we come to the end of this very long chapter with 39 and 40 where he begins to transition into some other things. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives but if her husband dies she is free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord yet, yet in my judgment she is happier if she remains as she is and I think that too uh, that I too have the spirit of God. So he's again pushing up his singleness he's saying it's a good thing okay then chapter 8. Now I'm going to read all of chapter 8. It's only 13 verses. And then we're going to come back and pick it apart three sections at a time. Okay? Because he turns to something else now. 
And this is, uh, boy, if you can't make it the next three or four Wednesdays, including tonight, if you can't make it, you should listen to the podcast when it does get posted because really from 8-1 to 11-1 is really all one unit. He goes in some different directions, but it's really all one unit. Okay? So he writes, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotes. This knowledge puffs up, but loves, love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Okay, that sounds like coded language. What does all that mean? We'll unpack it. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. Uh, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, though former, uh, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food, is, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we are no better off if we do. Take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ." Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so. Uh, Again, just as in chapter 7, Paul begins with this phrase, now about, or now concerning, which reminds us that Paul is answering questions the Corinthians have written to him, to ask him. So they ask Paul about whether or not they should be eating food or meat sacrificed to idols. Now, that's not exactly something we fuss about in the church today, is it? Has anybody, like, nobody has, you know, I talk about Zimberger a lot from the pulpit. Nobody has come and challenged me and said, you know, those are hamburgers offered to idols. And, and you shouldn't be eating those. Nobody's challenged me on that. Okay. So we don't, we don't worry too much about whether or not we should be eating food or meat sacrificed to idols. But the principles and the obligations and the application that comes from this discussion is certainly relevant for us because there are other things in the church that we deal with. But here's what's happening in Corinth. So we know what's happening there that they asked Paul about. Some of the Corinthian Christians were going to pagan temples and eating food there that had been sacrificed to idols. So Paul, what do we do about that? They believe that this is possibly encouraging other Christians to go into the temples. Wouldn't that be a problem? So this is one challenge in chapter 8 that launches us into a longer discussion that does take us through the first verse of chapter 11. So one author calls chapters 8 through 10 of 1 Corinthians, he calls it, quote, gospel gospel obligations in a pluralistic world. So 
there will be a somewhat contiguous discussion for us for the next few Wednesday nights. That's, that's my point about trying to hear every, every part of this. But the first question you might ask is, okay, so what's pluralism? What, what does it mean to have gospel obligations in, in a pluralistic world? So here's pluralism defined. Pluralism is the belief that differences between the religions are not a matter of truth and falsehood, but of different perceptions of truth, and to deny any perception is inadmissible. Pluralism, or perceiving all truths as relative, is to be celebrated. So we essentially live in a pluralistic world and country right now. Okay? So you can see that the pagan temple meat-eating is an application or consequence of this living in a pluralistic society. Corinth was known for all of these pagan temples with their prostitutes and their meat sacrificed to idols where they'd go and eat and they'd feast and they'd have these orgies and all of that stuff. And, and there were Christians who are saved, they believe in the gospel, but they're still going in and eating to these temples because, you know, they want to be a part of the culture and their friends are in there and all that stuff. We have similar tensions too, which we'll get to. But first, let's talk about and acknowledge this tension. There are idols. There are false gods. I talk about that all the time, I feel like, on Sunday morning from the front. I talk about it in premarital counseling as well. So there are idols. There are false gods. And we are very willing to submit our lives to them, to live in bondage to them. But here's the funny thing. Idols aren't real. Paul says that here. He says that's one of the tensions that you have. You're worshiping this thing, but it's not real. Okay? So, in a sense, what he's saying is eating food sacrificed to idols really isn't a problem because there's only one God. But that's in his mature understanding of the gospel and of faith. He does not have a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols. But he's going to talk about the weaker brothers and sisters who don't get that and who are put off by that behavior. Okay? So, he says, but what Paul eventually gets to in chapter 8 is really about loving other Christians who happen to be weaker than you because they do not yet understand. And that is, it is our obligation as stronger Christians, as more mature Christians, to live in compassion toward the weaker Christians by submitting to something that you know isn't really true. Isn't that ironic? Okay. I, I, I know that that's not really a problem. But if it makes you uncomfortable... I'm not going to do it. That's what he's saying. Okay. So verses 1 through 3 is a fascinating paragraph. I'm going to reread it. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. That's in quotes. So he's quoting what some of the uh, Corinthians who are eating the meat sacrifice to idols, they're saying, look, we know that it's, it's just a false god. We know it's not real. I, I'm in Christ. I understand the gospel. It's no big deal. Jesus made all things clean. You know, Peter had that weird dream where the sheet dropped, you know, and, and all things were clean. We can eat reptiles if we want to, for crying out loud, although I'm not sure why anybody would. But we can do that, okay? So they're saying, we have this knowledge. So he's quoting them. But then he says, this knowledge, the problem with this knowledge, though, is that it puffs up. It, it inflates us. It, it makes us proud in a bad way. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, 
He is known by God. So what's happening in the church in Corinth is that there are some who are going into the pagan temples. They're not getting with the prostitutes, which would really be a problem. That would be a problem, but they are eating meat sacrificed to the false gods. Some of the Christians, what Paul might describe as weaker in their faith, are either troubled by this and judging those other ones and creating factions and dissensions and gossip, or they're being enticed to join even though they think it's wrong and sinful. So in their mind, it's sin, so these stronger Christians with knowledge are actually causing their weaker brother and sister to sin because in their mind, it's sin. So this is causing some real problems in the church. Lots of divisions over this. But those eating the meat have knowledge. They know that the false gods are not real. They know that Jesus has made everything clean. Like I said, Acts 7, um, Mark 7 and Acts 10. And therefore they should not be criticized in any way for what they are doing. Okay? I'm just exercising my right to freedom in Christ. You have no right to talk to me about this. I've run into that a lot. Okay. So how does this apply to us? I'll get there, don't worry. I've got 19 minutes to get there. Okay. Anyway, here's the beef. Those eating the food have become stumbling block to both those others who are weaker Christians in their faith, and they become a stumbling block to the entire community. They are admittedly exercising their Jesus-given gospel freedom, but they're exercising it in a way that hurts others. And therefore, it hurts the entire community. And they're doing this because they claim to have superior knowledge about their freedom in the gospel. So, rhetorical question. You can answer if you want. Do we have freedom in the gospel? Yes. Not a trick question. Yes. Does that mean it's always correct to exercise that freedom? No. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Um, Please. I like this venue because it's nice and small, and so we can have discussion. Okay. Um, with regards to going to the fine food that is been offered to idols, was, was, the, um, was there a marketplace at this pagan temple, and that's where they picked up yeah. food? And, and, they, and they would even, they, they would, the, the temples, the individual temples would have, like, Christian bookstores. I mean, they would have marketplaces, you know. But, but, but then there were also bigger markets where they would sacrifice the meat to idols, and then they'd just take it to an open market. And the assumption was that all the meat in Corinth was probably sacrificed in some way, shape, or form to an idol. That was the assumption. Not necessarily true, but that was the assumption. But, yeah, the temples would have markets. Sure. Um, so you and I know many Christians who have way more biblical knowledge than we do, right? I, I, I'm a pastor, and I can tell you there are people out there just sitting in the, and they scare the snot out of me. You know, they're sitting there every Sunday, and I'm like, you know, I wonder if this is right. You know, anyway, they're really smart. You know, I didn't grow up with the Bible. I, you know, I taught this. Um, I'm just finishing up this class at uh, GCU Ministry 430 Ministerial Communication, and I'm sitting in there with mostly uh, 20, 21, 22-year-olds, they're all seniors, um, who grew up in the church, and I'm just blown away by what they know about the Bible. It's, it's a little intimidating. Okay, so we, all of us know people who know the Bible better than us. But when it comes to love, empathy, compassion, restraint, and mercy, some of those people that know the Bible really well, they fail miserably at those things. Isn't that interesting? 
You know, Jesus taught about that too. The Pharisees knew the law backwards and forwards, but they were just terrible to people, some of them, you know. So think of gospel freedom as a right. I have a right to eat anything I want because Jesus made all foods clean. I remind Jackie of that every time I eat sushi. She won't kiss me for 24 hours after I've eaten sushi. She walks around going, unclean, unclean, okay? The problem is, and we all know this is a problem in our culture, but what we may not realize is that it's also a problem in the church. It's permeated the church, is that rights come with responsibilities. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, okay. They come with responsibilities, and most of us, most of us have taken to asserting and screaming about our rights and freedoms without realizing, accepting, and diligently engaging with our responsibilities. That's the problem. And we do this in the church, too. And that's what was going on in Corinth. So I know that you may be comfortable with having a beer or a glass of wine, and you may feel that Christians who see that as anathema can be a real pain in the neck. Can I get an amen there? (laughs) Right? Okay. But we also have a responsibility in our freedom to be able to say no to that right if it causes consternation or stumbling or vexation by a brother or sister in the faith. It may, depending on your tone and attitude, also provide an opportunity to bring somebody along in understanding the gospel. But man, you've got to be really careful there because it, it, uh, too often I've seen that more of, of a reason why you shouldn't be telling me I can't rather than trying in grace to engage the person and really trying to help understand who Jesus is. But anyway, you get the point, okay? Uh, Our knowledge on these issues can certainly be correct, but it can also lead to pride and arrogance and chaos. I know this is really hard. I get it. And and certainly as a pastor, you must know I deal with this quite quite often. We, We deal with this quite often. In Romans, Paul calls this disputable matters. If you want to turn to Romans 14, it's just a few pages to your left. I'm going to read verses 13 through 21 in Romans 14. So Paul is pretty strong about, you know, uh, he's, he's pushing back on the weaker brother here and sister. He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know that I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is in, unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. See, there's the problem. And that's so hard. It's not sin. I think it is. All right, I need to show some self-control, some restraint. And you're no longer invited to my gathering. <laughs> I know that's just the way we think. But we need to show some self-control, some restraint. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But if uh, by what you eat, Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat, drink, eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. I think that's the end of 21, right? Yeah. So you get, you get his point there. This is not, so what I'm pointing out there is this is not the first time that Paul talks about this in Scripture. It's not the only time. So here you go. I have a list of disputable matters in the church. And it's, um, it's not an all-inclusive list. I'm sure you could add things to the list. But, uh, you know, I had like 15 seconds that I was going to devote to this, and I came up with about 15 things. So, drinking, a disputable matter in the church. Okay, so, and it's not just, here's, here's one of the problems. That you used to say drinking. Okay, so now you got to, all right, let's define what we're talking about. Okay, are you talking about intoxication? Are you talking about just having a beer? Are you talking about a lightweight just having a beer? Are you talking about having, here you go, one beer, but it happens to be 44 ounces? Because, you know, there are 44-ounce beers, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you got to kind of define that. Anyway, drinking cigars, vaping. Any vapors? Okay. Uh, sports gambling. This is becoming, just very fast has become an issue now because of all the apps and everything. Which, by the way, I just, I'm, this is not the Lord speaking. This is me personally speaking. All of this gambling on sports now that is just so, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to all gamble on sports. I don't see this ending well. And Pete Rose needs to be in the Hall of Fame, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, the lottery, uh, guns, breastfeeding. I know some of you are like, what? That's a disputable matter in the church for some people. Breastfeeding. Uh, public schools versus private schools. Nutrition, diets, veganism, vegetarianism. Let me tell you something. I, this is, I'm just telling you my experience. When I first came to Redemption Arcadia more than 10 years ago, I really believed that a significant portion of our congregation believed that you weren't really a Christian unless you were a vegan. I had more conversations with people telling me that I really couldn't lead this congregation unless I changed the way I ate. And that I needed to become a... And I even started reading books on it because I wanted to see, all right, what's the big deal? Okay? But veganism, vegetarianism, R-rated movies and shows, Game of Thrones, for instance. Okay? I know that there are Christian groups who watch Game of Thrones or watched Game of Thrones. I suppose it's over by now. By the way, I didn't watch Game of Thrones. And some of you know I watched Dexter, so you're like, so what? You know, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, but I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I did try to read the novels, okay? I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm apparently not smart enough to read those novels. Tyler James actually uh, read the novels and put together an organizational chart of who everybody was related to and everything because you couldn't keep track of it. Because he wanted desperately to keep track of it. Anyway, that's my little Game of Thrones story. But from what I understand, the Game of Thrones shows were were a problem, okay, for some people, but others watch it. Investments, okay, what are you investing in? You know, is your, is your portfolio faith-friendly? I, I, I can't go through this list without also mentioning masks and vaccines, 
Okay, still dealing with that, still dealing with that today. I'm sure there's others. And, and it's, I, I would just say it's a weird and strange thing. We live in a culture that I believe can best be described by one word, and it is polarized. Anybody want to disagree with that? Okay. And, and here you go. Some of you, uh, Barry and maybe Susan, certainly you, uh, Dan, <laughs> maybe Brian, uh, some of you lived through the late 70s. Okay. Uh, for a while, I was walking around going, we're still not as divided as we were in the late 70s. I no longer say that. Okay. By the way, God sent a unifying force in 19, early 1980 that brought us out of our divided funk. Does anybody remember what that was? And it, no, it wasn't Ronald Reagan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can see how that might be, but it was before, even before Reagan. Anybody know? Yes, Rachel got it. We won the gold medal in the 1980 Winter Olympics, and we beat the Russians in the semifinals and won the gold medal. Ended up beating Finland, I think it was, in the final. Most people don't remember that there was also one more game to play for the gold medal. Um, and they were behind going into the third period. They were getting beat pretty bad going into the third period, but they took over in the third. Anyway. That unified the nation. Do you remember that? What? Woodstock. No, that wasn't in 1980. That was in 69, wasn't it? Yeah, that wasn't unified. Yeah, it wasn't. Well, for some it was. Uh, but they, were re they regretted later the way they reunified. <laughs> By the way, I forgot to add Ira to that list. I never think of Ira as as old as me, you know. Uh, he's, you know, he, I, anyway. He is. So... So we're polarized. So let me give you just some examples that I think is, is interesting. And I know that one of these things is, um, is like weird because I told you about my experience with guns. But I, I really believe in the Second Amendment and I don't ever want it repealed. But I won't ever own a gun. Okay. I've been criticized for that position. Okay. Um, here you go. This is the one where I get a lot. I'm triple vaxxed, but I firmly believe that vaccine mandates are a violation of our rights. And the government has no business being involved in our medical, personal medical care like that. That's my belief. I know you might have a, you might have a differing opinion about that, but I went and got vaccinated three times, but I, I'm against vaccine mandates. I, I have been ridiculed to no end for that. And then this is the one I get, I've been ridiculed the most for. I'll wear a mask anytime, anytime anyone uh, thinks it will help them because I want them to be at ease and comfortable around me. But I, I will tell you, I hate masks and I'm dubious about their effectiveness against the current virus. And this is where people have been the most angry and disappointed in me. And so now, because you come on Wednesday night, you make the effort to actually leave your house again on, on a weeknight, you get to hear some inside baseball, okay? We lost a lot of people during the... 2020 and 2021, first half of 2021. Some of it was over the race stuff and all of that. But by our count, we lost more than 100 people, adults, from this church over masks. More than 100 people from this church because of masks. And, and here's the thing that was so frustrating for the elders and for the pastors, okay? Either our policy and protocols were not strong enough, and then the argument over and over was, 
if you really want to show Christian love, you'll make the policy more stringent. So they left because it wasn't strong enough. And I thought it was pretty strong. But what they wanted was what we ended up calling them in the back room, of course, but now I'll publicly say what, what they wanted was they wanted uh, on Sunday services, they wanted mask Nazis to literally walk around telling people, put your mask, pull up your mask, pull up your mask, put your mask, and do all that. And so we're just like, we're, we're just, we're, nobody wants that job, first of all. Do you want it? <laughs> you know? So, no, I want someone else to do it. Okay. So they left. Or the fact that we even had a policy and protocols was anathema to other people, and so they left. And they would say, if you are really a person of faith, you know that this mass thing is wrong and unhelpful, and, and you'll just let uh, everything fall where it may. Okay. So Paul says, and I would agree with him, it's just not that simple. These disputable matters are just not that simple. I believe it's one of the things where God says, I'm going to drive you into relationships so that you can practice gospel love with each other. Which we tend to suck at sometimes, right? Okay. And secondly, Paul calls us to submit, even though you ha- you know you have every right not to. Okay. Think about Jesus going to the cross. He had every right to go. Not doing that. He had every right. Okay. And yet he went. And and he did it for people who. We're not nearly as holy and as perfect as he is, okay? Um, by the way, for the record, I'll just tell you this. Maybe, maybe some of you have heard me talk about this before. The, the most interesting thing to me was the fact that um, we, had, we have so many people in our church who are in healthcare, doctors, PAs, uh, nurse practitioners, all that. I, I would sit down with one person and say, I'm in healthcare, so I know what I'm talking about. People should be double masked and blah masks and this and masks and masks and masks. And then my very next meeting would be somebody, I'm in healthcare, so I know what I'm talking about. I have no idea why you're asking anybody to wear a mask. They don't work. Okay, and both of them saying, I know the science. <laughs> okay, you have to listen to me because I know the science. And, and the whole time, like, please, can I give you this person's phone number and you two can go talk this out? Please, please? Okay. It's fascinating. But these are disputable matters. They're matters of conscience, you know. And so here's what it's really about. It's about knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. Does anybody, we're going to talk about this a little bit in the Corinthians, I mean the Colossians series that we're starting on Sunday. Uh, that we're doing for 10 weeks. Does anybody know what Gnosticism is? So Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is the word for knowledge or to know something. Gnosticism is a Christian heresy that was very popular in the late first century that was already starting to infiltrate some of these uh, churches, even as early as the mid-50s, some form of it, where, yes, Jesus is our Savior, but there's this other special knowledge that if you have that, then you're really saved and you're really on the inside. And there's all kinds of, there's myriad forms of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is still practiced today in churches, you know. Yes, Jesus is this, this, but if you really know Jesus, then this. And that's this special knowledge that you need to acquire or be taught or whatever that is. And so that's adding to the gospel. That's another gospel that's a false gospel. Paul talks about that, for instance, in Galatians. 
And so this knowledge tends to push us to throw charity, Christian charity, out the window. Christian charity is a sort of a catch-all phrase for love, mercy, compassion, empathy, all those things that we should have. And so this is what Paul is getting at. So meat sacrificed to idols, a glass of wine with dinner, masks during a virus, sports betting. Who says that this isn't relevant? It's all relevant. Okay. Now I admit that's a load. And I admit that my goal was to get through chapter 8 tonight, (laughs) but we're stopping here. So we'll pick up with the rest of chapter 8. That will go fairly quickly, uh, 4 through 13, but that's where we'll pick up uh, next Wednesday night, okay? So let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word and its truth. And I just, again, as always, I pray that um, uh, in my excitement and passion and exuberance, I pray that your Holy Spirit would filter out that which is unhelpful and that Uh, the Spirit of God, your Spirit, would apply the Word of God, your Word, to the hearts and the minds of the people of God, your people who are right here. So thank you for this evening, and and thank you for uh, the way you love us and the way you've demonstrated that love, not only through the cross, but also by giving us um, something tangible uh, for us to read and to be able to study and to be able to know you and Jesus better. We pray that in Jesus' name.